If you have your Bibles this morning, I would invite you to turn with me to Psalm 44. Psalm 44. We'll continue with Psalm 42 and 43, which we looked at last week. Now to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, we'll read the text together. Psalm 44, to the choir master of Amaskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes, through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of of your steadfast love. One of the universal human experiences that every person goes through is sorrow. It's difficulty. I'd be shocked if anyone in here said they had never been sad before or to even go a step further, they had never shed a single tear in their entire life. Have you ever heard someone make that claim? They claim that they very proud of the fact that they had never cried. 
Crying really is a universal human experience because of difficult circumstances, because of emotional pain. The list goes on and on. Crying is a universal experience. But perhaps this sort of crying is unique. And the reason being is because of a simple thing that occurs all throughout this psalm. And that is the subject. We can relate very easily to Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 because of its personal nature. If you just glance back to those two psalms, you see my, I, mine. You see the word my, me, my, I all being used as a demonstration of personal difficulty. But the difference changes in Psalm 44. It's revealed to us, not just I or my, a personal struggle. This is a corporate struggle. Our, us, we. Have you ever been in a circumstance where every single person in the room was crying? Those experiences are very rare for us. Perhaps it was at a funeral. Perhaps it was at some response to an emotional tragedy that happened, a natural disaster where everyone was weighed down with sorrow. The natural response was to cry. But that is not a common experience for us. It's much more common for us to sing joyfully together, for everyone to resound with praise to our God, to worship him for the good things that he has done for us. But for us to come into a corporate setting like this as a congregation, and to experience sorrow collectively is something that is very foreign to us. And yet these are the circumstances of Psalm 44. In many ways, Psalm 44 is the corporate expression of what takes place in Psalm 42 and 43. If you look with me at verse 25 of Psalm 44, you'll see a phrase. Our soul is bowed down to the dust. That line is almost verbatim repeated in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 three times. Psalm 42, 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Psalm 42, 11, why are you cast down, O my soul? Psalm 43, 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Then when you turn to the next psalm, Psalm 44, it's not just my soul. It's our, for our soul is bowed down to the dust. In fact, that word actually bowed down only occurs six times in your entire Bible. Four of them are in Psalm 42 and 43. The next one is occurs in the very next psalm. Psalm 44 really is this corporate expression, a congregational expression of sorrow. And this is not something that we relate to very easily. It's something that is very foreign to us. Perhaps it's because of the individualized society in which we live. Our society has relegated everything to concerns regarding the individual. No longer it's what you can do for your community or society, it's what can society or your community do for you. We live in an individual age. And perhaps that's why this corporate expression of grief is so foreign to us. But this morning it is my intention to examine this cry and how it is revealed in its different progression in Psalm 44. So this morning, Psalm 44, when the congregation cries. And we'll look at really five different cries in this psalm. And there is a building up that occurs. And the first cry really is found here in verses 1 through 3. And we could label this a cry from history. A cry from history. Look with me at verse 1 through 3 of Psalm 44. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. 
this psalm, this cry, this corporate cry of grief begins by looking to the past. It begins by looking at things that God has done in history that have been passed down from generation to generation. You even see in verse 1, this is a very personal accounting. Look what it says. It says, oh God, we have heard with our ears. There are many different ways the psalmist could phrase this, but he chooses this particular language to demonstrate the way in which they have experienced this history. It has been told from one person to the next. From story to story, person to person, these accounts have been passed down to the children of God. And this is not just a random collection of any stories in Old Testament Israel. It's not just any, you know, conglomeration. I like this story and I like this story. Or perhaps this is my favorite one. I'm going to tell this one. These are very specific stories that refer to a very specific event. And if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 2, you can see that. You with your own hand drove out the nations. You afflicted the peoples. Verse 3, not by their own sword did they win the land. What event is this describing? It's not describing God's work in creation. It's not describing the Exodus account. It's describing a very specific event. Namely, the conquest of the land by the children of God in the power of God. That is the story that is being recounted. And why is that the story that the psalmist starts his cry with? Of all the historical things that he could have gone to in the midst of this lament, why is this the cry? Why is this the story? And it's because this particular story is the exact opposite of the circumstances they were going through. These particular narratives that he is recounting, the narratives of Israel entering the land and conquering the other nations, are the exact opposite of what he is going to describe in his sorrow. If you look with me at verse 9, he says this. You have rejected us. You have not gone out with our armies. This is a military context, the context of battle. Lord, we remember in the past when you did this for our fathers, you entered with them into the land, you drove out the nations before them. But for us right now, that is not taking place. The stories that their attention is drawn to are ones that are exact opposite of the current circumstances. And this is also significant because they understand the theological reasoning for why they accomplished those victories in the first place. Look with me at verse 3. Not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own sword save, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. As they recount these stories, they understand, they understand how they came into how they came to happen. They understand that it was not by their own strength. There's no taking of credit to them. To their fathers. Oh our fathers were much more mighty than we are. That's why they conquered the land. They understand the theological reason for why. That the nation of Israel entered the land. And was able to conquer. Namely verse 3. That God's right hand and his arm was empowering them. That his light. The light of his face was shining upon them. Even that language is taken directly from Numbers chapter 6 verse 25. The Aaronic blessing. May God be gracious to you and may the light of his face shine upon you. And they're saying, that happened. That happened in history. And as they say that that happened in history, the implication is that is not happening right now. The things that you did for our fathers, that we would love to happen, 
that we desire for our current experience right now is not taking place. And so you'd expect them to move from a cry of history directly into the corporate expression of sorrow. But you notice something very interesting. Perhaps in your Bibles, there's a break between verse 3 and verse 4. The translators are trying to help us understand the way the stanzas are operating in this psalm. Really, verse 1 through 3 is this this connection that goes together. Verse 4 through 8 is a second one. So we see a cry from history, but instead of moving directly into sorrow over the current circumstances, the whole congregation takes this break. It's almost like an interlude in the middle of of a psalm. An interlude to praise God. So we see a cry from history, but next we see a cry of theology. Verse 4 through 8. Look with me at verse 4. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. All those things aren't currently taking place. We must keep that in mind. And yet they are affirming them. The congregation together is affirming things to be true of God prior to their expression of grief. Prior to their sorrow, they realize although our circumstances do not agree with what we are affirming theologically, these things are still true. Verse 4, that you are my king. In fact, this is one of the only times in Psalm 44 when there is an individual expression. You are my king. The congregation together is personalizing. Perhaps as they were singing this psalm together, the leader was taking a break and making this statement. It's not clear why there's an individual statement here. Maybe it was the king himself was leading this corporate expression of sorrow. But it is significant that prior to moving to their expression of grief, they affirm certain things about God's nature to be true. Namely, one, that he is the king, and second, that he is the source of salvation. Prior to expressing their grief over their circumstances, they affirm things to be true because they know, although their circumstances contradict, the circumstances cannot unseat the reality of who God is. God is our king, and he ordains salvation for his people. And although we are not experiencing it right now, we affirm that to be true. And that is precisely God's people must commit to throughout history. If you look back in church history and all the different experiences of how God's people have suffered, what is the repeated refrain over and over and over again throughout church history? It's that God is still king and he still ordains salvation. If you were to think through all those who had suffered persecution, those who had been burned at the stake, those who had been beheaded, those who had lost their life, and were to bring them here before you today, after having experienced that, they would still affirm these things to be true. That God is king and that he ordains salvation for his people. Circumstances do not change that. And so because circumstances do not change unshakable realities of God, they also do not change change God's people's commitment to praise him in the midst of those same circumstances. But look with me at this next cry, and we really will spend more time on this part. 
And that is the cry of misery. In verse 9. They commit to praising God. Verse 8. In God we have boasted continually. We will give thanks to your name forever. But they are in a misery. They are in difficult circumstances. Verse 9. You have rejected us. And disgraced us. And have not gone out with our armies. This struggle is a struggle that is formulated by combining what God has done in the past, the theology that comes from those observations, and comparing that to the present. As they look back in the past and they see what God has done, and they affirm things to be true about God's nature, they work from that to their present, and as they compare and contrast, there's a clear difference. And that produces this struggle. That produces this misery. God, you have over and over and over again throughout history given victory to your people. But right now, that is not happening. We know you're the king. We know you're the only source of salvation. But what's happening right now? Why have we been defeated? Why have you not gone out with our armies? Well, as you read these descriptions of what God has done, it's very clear that God has done these things. Perhaps we just read right over this, but it's very important in this passage. Look with me at verse 9. Who is the subject of these actions? Who is doing these things? God is. Verse 10. Who is the subject that begins the verse? You. Verse 11. Who is the subject? You. Verse 12. You. Verse 13. You. Verse 14. You. They look at their current circumstances and they affirm again a theological truth. That God is responsible for the current circumstances in which they are in. That God could have prevented it if he so desired. He could have gone out with armies, but he did not. They affirm over and over and over again in this psalm, in this expression of sorrow, that God is the source of this difficulty. Now, these are not a random conglomeration of descriptions of their circumstances. If you look with me at verse 10, this language comes from a place previous in your Old Testament. Verse 10, you have made us turn back from the foe. Just keep a hand here, and I would like you to turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. Many of the descriptions that we read from verse 10 through verse 14 are taken directly from Deuteronomy 28. A passage that details God's covenantal relationship with his children, with the children of Israel. Deuteronomy 28 sets forward curses for disobedience and blessing for obedience. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. But if you look at verse 15, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, Then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obeying God's voice, the covenant relationship that he has. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15, cursings for disobeying. So when you look at the language of this psalm, it says, you have made us turn back from the foe, verse 10, and you compare that to Deuteronomy 28, that's the language of a covenantal curse. Look with me at Deuteronomy 28, verse 25. The Lord will cause you To be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them. And flee seven ways 
before them. Or Psalm 44 verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Well, look with me at Deuteronomy 28, 64. The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. Again, language of covenantal curse now being brought on to their current circumstances. It's as if the people of Israel look around, they see, well, God, we look at our circumstances and we are under the curse of this covenant that you have made with our fathers and with us. This language continues in verse 12. You have sold your people for a trifle. Or verse 14, you have made us a byword among the nations. You look at Deuteronomy 28 verse 37. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. The point being, as they look at their circumstances, as they are struggling to come to grips with what God is doing, he is responsible for doing, they are realizing they are experiencing all the curses of the covenant. Their theology is now going into doubt. They look back and they see what God has done. They look at their current circumstances and it seems far, far different. And they begin to wonder, God, why have you not gone out with us? We've seen what you've done in the past. Why are you doing what you're doing in the present? Are we really under these experiences of the covenant? I think C.S. Lewis expresses this really well in his famous children's series, The Chronicles of Narnia. Perhaps you've read some of those books. I think they turned them into films. Maybe you've seen one or two of them. And this series isn't strictly an allegory. It's not right to draw one-to-one comparisons. Lewis didn't intend for it to be an allegory. But there's a fourth book, and that book is Prince Caspian. And in this book, there are these children who have been summoned to this magical land, a land known as Narnia, And in the previous books, in their previous experiences in this land, they had met this ferocious lion who was also good and beautiful and true. A lovely lion, but a terrible lion who could conquer all his enemies. That lion's name, perhaps you know, is Aslan. And as they encounter and interact with this lion, this lion proceeds to be a good and gracious lion to these children. Well, as they're summoned back to this land, Narnia, in the fourth book, there's this struggle because they don't see the lion. In fact, the lion seems very absent from the land. People have heard of him, but many people in the land actually don't even believe in his existence. So much so that the youngest of these children, Lucy, thinks she sees the lion and none of her siblings who full well believe in the existence of this lion see him. And so Lucy says, I've seen the lion. She tries to convince her siblings to to go in the direction in which she's seen Aslan. And they don't really want to follow her. And so eventually she wakes up in the middle of night. She has this dream and she begins wandering around. And she wakes up and she actually encounters Aslan. She sees him and he's there. And they have this conversation. And it's at the apex of this conversation that Lucy expresses a struggle that I think all of God's people can relate to. She says, Aslan, what's going on? And Aslan informs her of sort of what's been happening. And and then Aslan says, go back to your siblings. Tell them to come and follow me. And she doesn't want to leave him. Like this is the lovely lion, the ferocious lion, the lion who can conquer all of his enemies. Like why would I leave the lion and go back to my family? 
And so she expresses this complaint and is this complaint that I think we relate to. She says, Aslan, why didn't you come roaring in? I thought you were going to come roaring in and defeat all of our enemies just like you did last time. It's that struggle that Christian people face perhaps on a daily basis. We go through circumstances that are difficult. We know and we affirm to be true. We believe in God's existence. He has redeemed us. He has the power to do everything. We believe his word. All of these stories in the scriptures, we believe to be true. We are children of faith. And the struggle is not that we don't believe the circumstances in the past to be true. The struggle is not even that we don't believe God's revelation in his scripture to be true. The struggle is as we look at the scriptures and our circumstances, there seems to be a difference. As Lucy looks at her current plight and recognizes Aslan to have great strength, she wonders, why in the world would you seemingly remain distant from the people who believe in you and love you? It's the struggle of the nation of Israel. It's the struggle of God's people. Think about through God's dealings in church history and what God is doing with this church now. Can you think of any monumental works of the spirit of God throughout church history? And have you ever wondered why God has not done that? Why he has not poured out his spirit in that way upon this particular land? We live in a nation country that we often talk about is in spiritual decline. That the truths of God's word are no longer commonly accepted among God's people. Even among God's people, there is this relative biblical illiteracy. We, we struggle to know as much of the scriptures as generations past who followed the Lord. And we wonder, why does not God just pour out his spirit and redeem Simi Valley? Why does God not just redeem the people who I've been evangelizing over and over and over again? I've been faithful, Lord. I've proclaimed the truth to these people. Why don't you just come and give them salvation? And so we have this struggle with what we seem to see in Scripture and our current circumstances. And there is a danger that is inherent to this struggle. And that danger is the danger, you could put it in technical language, of denying the antecedent. Or in other words stated, it's concluding the inverse to be true of a statement that's true. For example, if you were to say, I'm an engineer, therefore I have a job. Well, that would be a true statement. But to infirm the inverse is not necessarily true. If you are not an engineer, you do not have a job. That struggle, that danger is present for God's people. They affirm earlier in the psalm, we had victory because you delighted in us. So is the reason we do not have victory right now because you do not delight in us? This is the struggle that all of God's people face when they suffer unrighteously. Lord, we believe that I am not suffering and that is a blessing from God upon my life. Perhaps I am suffering. Is God not blessing me? You see, to, confer, to affirm the inverse of something that is true about God is not necessarily true. It is possible, very real, for God's people to go through these sorts of sufferings when their circumstances seem to contradict everything that has been revealed to them about God. And they struggle to come to grips with the reality that God has brought in their life. Well, this is exactly where the psalm goes. 
after this cry of misery, it turns into this cry of confusion. Look with me at verse 17. You see, everything he stated about the covenant curses that God may bring upon his people if they had disobeyed him, None of that is actually a problem if indeed they had disobeyed him. In fact, that would actually be God's justice. That would be God being faithful to his word. The problem in this psalm is as you look at verse 17, it says, all this has come upon us, though what? Though we have not forgotten you. In fact, we have not been false to your covenant. God, you've brought covenantal curses upon us and we haven't broken your covenant. God, have you been unfaithful? God, have you violated your word? God, what are you doing in these circumstances? You see that their circumstances seem to contradict revelation that has taken place in the book of Deuteronomy. All this has come upon us, verse 17, though we have not forgotten you, we have not been false to your covenant. Or verse 18, our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Or verse 20, if in some way they forgot even the Lord's most hallowed name, or they pursued an idol, the argument here is that God would know those things and God would hold them accountable. He did that throughout redemption history. He held his people accountable. But that is not the struggle that they are facing. The struggle is that they are facing a suffering that seems to align with what God has revealed. And yet they have not violated his covenant. This produces confusion. This produces the question that lingers in our minds when we suffer. And that is the question of why. The hardest thing for a Christian, for one who's suffering in the midst of that suffering to go through, is this particular question. Why? Why is this happening to me? I've been faithful. I've been committed to your body of believers. Why would this occur? And this can even be the struggle of a church. We think about making corporate application of this psalm to Lighthouse Bible Church. God, we have been faithful to preach the gospel. God, we have not distorted the gospel from its truth. We have not added to the gospel. We have not subtracted to the gospel. We have proclaimed it to our community. And we look down the street and there's a church that has distorted the gospel, that has been false to the gospel, and it seems as if people are going in droves to assemble that church. Lord, your purpose is for your people to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's what you have put us here for. You have put us here to edify your children, to build them up in the faith. And people are leaving our church and maybe going to another church. Or people are leaving our assembly, maybe for different reasons, personal, moral. And it's a struggle for us. Or perhaps even more so, we see a church down the road that is preaching a a wrong gospel affirming things to be true that God has not said. And people from out of state are moving to go to this church. I ran into one of these individuals in the laundromat just three weeks ago. I was talking to this person and they said they're going to another church here in Simi Valley. And this church is preaching a false gospel. They're preaching something that isn't true. And I asked this individual, why did you move to Simi Valley? And she told me to go to that particular church. When was the last time someone moved from out of state, perhaps to come to this particular church? Well, by God's grace, that does happen here from time to time for various reasons. But that isn't something that commonly happens. Our church isn't exploding numerically because people have just 
heard about what God's doing at Lighthouse Bible Church and they want to be a part of it. If you think back uh, last year, there was sort of this strange, call it you could awakening. I wouldn't necessarily call it a revival, but there is this sort of awakening that got caught in the news media. It was at a school in Kentucky and people from out of state were moving to that area for a short period of time to see what supposedly God was doing at this particular school. And that may be a struggle for us. Like, God, why is that not happening for our church? We have not broken your covenant. We've been faithful. Why? This is the struggle of God's people. It's a cry of confusion. And so as a church, what do we do in a circumstance like this? Well, look with me at verse 22. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Here at the ending of this sort of cry of corporate sorrow, there is this glimpse of truth that that everything that they are going through is for something outside of themselves. For your sake, we don't understand why. We know it's for God. We don't know how it's glorifying him, but we affirm it to be true. For your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's this glimpse of truth. We know that everything we are going through is happening for the glory of God. You would affirm with me this morning that all things happen for the glory of God. That that is God's purpose. That we are put on this earth to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So we go through these circumstances and we affirm that they're happening for God's glory. But perhaps that isn't totally satisfactory for us. We feel like we need to know how this glorifies God. How is it that these circumstances in which we are experiencing, how do they bring God the maximum amount of glory? And it's very interesting that this psalm never answers that question. It's as if the psalmist and the congregation recognize that the answer to that question will not solve their ultimate problem. If you were to know exactly how the circumstances that you are going through, that we as a church struggle through, Even if we were to know exactly how it glorifies God, that would not solve our ultimate heart problem. The psalmist perhaps affirms this by not actually explaining that statement. And so, what is the response? What's the response of a congregation who cries? What's the response of a congregation who's struggling to come to grips with what God is doing in their life because it seems to contradict what God has revealed? What would God have for Lighthouse Bible Church? That brings us to this last cry. Not a cry from history or theology or misery or confusion. This is simply a cry for steadfast love. It's a cry for steadfast love. Look with me at verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our our affliction and oppression? We read prayers like this to God and Perhaps in our own experience, it's somewhat jarring. Have you ever prayed to God and asked him to awake? Maybe you have. Maybe you've prayed this psalm before. But when was the last time you prayed and you told God to rouse himself? To wake up? To not hide his face from you? We read a prayer like this and perhaps it's jarring. We think, oh, this psalmist doesn't have his theology right. He thinks God's asleep. Well, I don't think that's really what's taking place here as the psalmist prays, awake. Perhaps an example would be helpful. 
Think back to your childhood or perhaps the childhood of your current children. And perhaps you were asleep in the middle of the night, enjoying a peaceful night of sleep. One of the few you've had in the past couple of weeks. And your child comes rushing into your room without knocking. And they shake you and they tell you, wake up. And they express that they've had a terrifying dream. They cannot go back to sleep. Why is it they have such boldness, such brashness to come into your room in the middle of the night and wake you up? It's because of their unique relationship that they have with you. It's because they know intuitively that that's the one thing that would be most encouraging to them in the midst of these difficulties. Why is it that the psalmist, the congregation, prays to God in this bold way? Why is it that they come rushing into the presence of God and they say, God, awake? Because they know that God is their father. They know that God loves them. They know that if they bring their deepest need and sorrow to God, that he will respond with the kindness of his grace and the kindness of his steadfast love. Because God has redeemed you as his child, you may enter boldly into his presence and cry out for his steadfast love. And so it's unique that this psalm ends with this cry. Look with me at verse 26. Rise up, come to our help, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In the midst of a corporate cry of sorrow, the last word that these Israelites would have uttered on their lips was the steadfast love of God. They cry out and depend on God's steadfast love. You may not understand why our church goes through everything that it goes through. Why some people leave and why sometimes it's struggle. We don't maybe see this dramatic numerical growth or we don't see this dramatic outpouring of God's spirit whereby many come to Christ and begin to be discipled in this particular assembly. You may struggle with all of these things. Perhaps you have before. But even in the midst of those struggles, there is one thing, an appropriate response for God's people. And that is to cry out for God's steadfast love. God's covenant love. That he will not desert you. He will not abandon you. And although their circumstances seem to contradict, that he has not abandoned his people. He is faithful to them. Brings us to a point of final application. And it's interesting that this psalm is quoted in the New Testament. I want you to turn with me to that single quotation. It's in Romans chapter 8. Even as you turn to Romans 8, you can perhaps refresh your mind of the context of this passage by Paul. Paul's talking about the sufferings of this present life. They're not worth comparing with glory that's going to be revealed. He's talking about the groaning that God's people experience waiting for the coming day of Christ. And he concludes in Romans 8 with this discussion of God's love. Namely the love of Christ. Romans 8 verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
Verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he names all these circumstances. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. In answering that question, in adding to that, what is the passage he quotes? Well, you see it's even marked off there in your Bibles. It's Psalm 44, verse 22. Your sake, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He draws on the cry of Old Testament Israel that they were experiencing these circumstances. Tribulation, distress, persecution, the affliction of, the da- of danger and the sword. They experienced that. Who is going to separate us from God's love? Well, Psalm 44 ends and says, redeem us by your steadfast love. And as a Christian, where is that cry realize? Where does that cry receive application for your heart this morning? Well, it's in these statements of Paul. Who will separate you from the love of Christ? He ends, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are this morning struggling, if we as a church are struggling, what does Lighthouse Bible Church remain committed to? It's to cry out for the steadfast love of God that comes to you through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because in his blood, a new covenant has been formed. And in that new covenant, God views you as his child. You have been adopted into his family. And now nothing can separate you from this steadfast covenant love. Because it is coming to you through the person of Christ. Because God has loved Christ. He has loved you in him. And so nothing can separate you. Your circumstances may seem to contradict Everything you know about God and who he is. But even that does not separate you from Christ's love. As a church together this morning, this is what Lighthouse Bible Church remains committed to. It's to reaffirming over and over and over again that nothing can separate us from the steadfast love of God. Even if everything in us tells us We are. May God be praised because of the steadfast love of Christ. And may us as Lighthouse Bible Church, when we as a congregation cry out to God, may we cry out to God for his steadfast love. Let's bow our heads in prayer.